I recently had a chance to talk with serial entrepreneur Johan Munasinghe about his experience as a founder and as an investor. We talked about what he's seen in terms of the COVID crisis impact on startups and the kinds of strategies that seem to allow them to survive. We talked a bit about his experiences as a gay founder and the way communities around minority populations actually can help new founders. We also looked at how he chooses the companies he wants to invest in and some of his top tips for new founders. Johan, welcome to Fill the Boot. Thanks, Lance, for having me. It's great me. to talk to you. I know we used to talk all the time, but it's been a long time. Why don't we start off, tell us a little bit about your company, because I think you're, you're doing some interesting things. Yeah, so um, we are a restaurant finance company, um, but really have reinvented the way that um, that we finance restaurants. And um, my background, uh, as you know, Lance, is, is really in tech. Um, but um, I started investing in restaurants because I love food. And um, that was maybe seven, seven years ago. Um, and then I actually started a restaurant incubator in Washington, D.C. to, to help chefs, um, you know, learn things that they're not great at about running a restaurant. And then my idea was I could invest in them and, you know, kind of increase my odds of success uh, by having them go through that incubator. And I had financed about 30 restaurants um, personally at that point. And I had a chef in the incubator who really awesome chef, um, you know, great, great food. And he wanted to start uh, his own restaurant and he wanted me to, to fund it. Um, and I looked back at those 30 restaurants and probably realized what a lot of people who finance restaurants realize is that restaurants are not the best asset <laughs> class, um, to invest in. And, um, and so we um, basically created in kind, um, which our model is that we buy food and beverage credit in a restaurant um, and a lot of it. So we'll, we'll, you know, we'll buy a hundred thousand dollars in food and beverage credit from a restaurant um, that gives them the cash to open, to expand, to build a patio. Um, and then we turn around and sell that credit to consumers. Um, and we sell it in something called, we call them house accounts, which are basically like high dollar gift cards. Uh, consumer gets a bonus. So, you know, pay a thousand, get 1300 in credit. Um, it creates this uh, sort of awesome loyalty to the restaurant because, you know, you can imagine, Hey, where am I going for dinner tonight? Well, I'm going to go to a place I have, $800 in credit to go to. And when you go, you spend 80% more per visit. And, and the restaurants love it because they don't have to pay us back. It's not a loan. We don't take equity. You know, they don't have to have other partners. And, you know, as a as an equity investor in a restaurant, there's a lot of, of headaches um, that you don't necessarily want to deal with. Um, you know, when the chef wants to buy new plates, but you want a distribution, you know, that's not a discussion. That's a fun right. to have. Whereas with our model. Yeah, and, and of course, you're not moving <laughs> towards an exit with a restaurant probably either. You know, there's not going to be some IPO or 20x kind of uh, acquisition in most cases. Yeah, and really as a restaurant, an equity investor in a restaurant, um, you know, if you break even, you're doing better uh, than most than most investments. But it actually, what you're, uh, that's actually core to some of the issues with equity investments in restaurants is that typically in a typical restaurant, it's structured so that the majority of the profits uh, are distributed to the investors till they're paid back. And then the owner operator um, starts to share in those profits. Um, and usually it takes about three years 
that is its plan, the performance for a three-year payback uh, for the investors. So sort of in your, and usually it takes longer, but in your best case, you know, you're spending the operators in, the, in there working really, really hard for three years and working 100-hour weeks, and the investors are getting the profits, which is fair because they're the ones who, you know, who financed it. But it just creates a weird dynamic between the operator and the investors. Um, and so we, you know, there will always be equity investments in restaurants, like, and, you know, there'll always be loans. We don't provide enough capital to, to open a whole restaurant, you know. We're just part of that cap stack. Um, but I think our financing has um, is, is is much much more attractive um, to the restaurant um, and and to be honest for to our to the investors. So like we you know we raise money uh, from investors to provide to the restaurants. Uh, we have a we have a, cre- a credit fund and those investors, all of them in the credit fund, have formally made uh, have uh, yeah, prior to to investing in our debt fund, have made equity investments in restaurants. They love food. You know, they want to support local restaurants and they've all kind of dealt with the, the headaches and maybe of, of the asset class as equity investors. So now they're like, great, we can put it into in kind, restaurant gets funding, you know, we get a return and we don't Right, and, and, and the real the real uh, investment return that they want is for this restaurant to exist, for them to have this place to go and and, and it's kind of their, their place. Absolutely. Are you seeing restaurants using this to fund sort of the, the, the outdoor patios for COVID dining? Is that kind of a big area for you? Yeah, exactly. Um, outdoor dining um, is really big. We're right now um, figuring out, you know, New York, D.C., anywhere other than, you know, California, or Arizona, or maybe here in Texas, the winter is going to be rough. You know, you're not going to be able to have your outdoor seating. You're not going to probably be able to have indoor seating, you know, depending on, on what happens with COVID here. So we're, we're financing a lot of like um, heating for outdoor patios and, you know, things like that, which, um, which are going to be critical uh, for restaurants through the winter. Now, you talked about with, with your earlier strategy, you were sort of had this incubator. Do you find that uh, restaurateurs don't tend to be sort of business inclined? They needed a lot of help in that area. You know, the interesting, uh, so I would say restaurateurs, the best restaurateurs are very business inclined. They may not be the best chefs, but they're very business inclined, right? I think the best chefs, usually what happens with a restaurant um, is you've got a great chef, an independent restaurant. You've got a great chef who, you know, is awesome uh, at producing food and then opens a restaurant and realizes that running a restaurant is a lot more than just producing great food, right? It's a really tricky business in that you have to be great at production, which, you know, is, is what they're good at, uh, but also, you know, distribution, right? Like you have these people who are eating there. Um, you have to be great at social media, you know, because that's how you're attracting patrons. And you have to know how to, you know, a lot of times um, they they don't use a you know commercial real estate agent, so they try to go and they find a deal on their own. So now they're having to be great, you know, at real estate selection and mm. all of these other things that they're not good at. And that's usually um, I met with an entrepreneur chef um, this week uh, a couple of days ago, and she awesome, awesome cook, awesome. Like her food is excellent, and she was telling me about the real estate deal that she's in, and I was like, whoa. Well, that's that's really not a good deal, you know. <laughs> like, and now she's tied into it, and she's put in hundreds of thousands of dollars. And she 
refinance your house to do a build out. And, you know, it's just like all of these, these stories. So the incubator, I think was really, really helpful because we were able to help, you know, uh, six, I think six restaurants opened outside of the incubator and really helped them to be successful. But I think my experience from the incubator was actually started because I was part of Techstars in their very first class. And I had my very first startup failed after about eight months. And it was, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. My college roommate and I, we were, you know, started a company. And then our next company we did through Techstars. And just having that support and guidance and mentorship um, made the difference. And, you know, we were able to exit that business. And I, I think that's what, that's how we designed the food incubator was for the restaurateur who, you know, who's, who's good and passionate, but just doesn't have the knowledge to do the other parts of the business. So the support structure. That we I mean, it about. does seem like it's a, a very similar problem to most startups where, for example, instead of being a great chef, you're a great coder, but you have no idea about anything else. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you gave some really good advice. You wrote an article uh, really on in the COVID talking about what restaurants needed to do in an emergency. And I thought I was incredibly impressed with that. And maybe you could talk just briefly about kind of one of some of the high points of what you talked about there. And what is your thinking now that we're much deeper into this crisis and it looks like it's not going to be a short term? Yeah. Um, so, you know, some of the advice we gave restaurants really early on was talk to your landlord, you know, renegotiate your deal with your landlord, make sure that your revenue is going to be way down. So, you know, the landlord needs to understand that. And, and, um, and typically the restaurants that were doing well or okay or paying rent, you know, and the landlords are happy with them almost in every case, they said, okay, we'll work out a deal with you, right? Because the landlord doesn't want an empty space, and especially during, after COVID or during COVID, you know, releasing that space is a headache. Um, and in our in our portfolio, we have we financed um, in the last three and a half years about 450 restaurants, and we've actually only seen one closure, wow. um, permanent closure, um, and everyone else is is operating at least in a in a to go mm -hmm. capacity you know, at a minimum. Um, and it really depends on the state that they're in. Here in Texas, you know, restaurants are, are busy. You know, people are going out. Um, last night, uh, I went out for dinner and um, there were, I had to go to the third restaurant because the first two were completely full on a Tuesday night. You know, oh, wow. like you can't even get a table here. Um, whereas in DC, people are um, a lot more cautious um, and so in DC, people are eating out a lot less. Um, so we have a, a high density of restaurants in DC as well. So we can just see that in the numbers. Um, so it really depends on where you are. Um, we, you know, the restaurants that have been able to tweak their model to operate with lower labor costs, um, to really, um, maybe add more items that are good for delivery take away items from their menu to streamline them so they don't need as much labor in the kitchen to produce them, uh, take advantage of a lot of the changes in liquor laws where they can now deliver wine and they, you know, they can deliver cocktails. Those restaurants are actually from a net perspective might be doing better than they were doing pre COVID. Certainly their gross revenue is down, mm -hmm. you know, but, um, but they've been able to bring down their costs. There's been a lot of, um, you know, government support that, we were hoping for another round, uh, unclear what, um, 
<laughs> what the president's thinking there exactly is he said something yesterday and something different today. So we're hoping there's another round of funding to go and really support small businesses and restaurants. Um, but I would say like, just like in, you know, in tech, like you have the operators who can pivot and can innovate and those guys will make it through. Um, and some of them are actually more profitable now. Than yeah, it's really, uh, in Healdsburg, it's been interesting to watch the, some of the restaurants adapt and most of them are really high end. And, uh, you know, our three Michelin star restaurant was doing family meals for four, for like $130, which you can't get into single thread for that, right? you know, <laughs> you know, that's a yeah. $800 for two kind of place. Uh, amazing food, but yeah, they were innovative thinking about what's going to travel, what, what'll make it home in your trunk and reworking the menus to, to optimize around the new world and kind of interesting over the weeks to watch them improve and you know learn these new systems and what's going to be the best because none of these places had ever done takeout at all before yeah absolutely um, i was talking to uh, uh, I my dinner last night was with one of our, our restaurant groups that we funded out here and i was talking to i dinner with the ceo and he was saying during covid like they actually started doing their own delivery because you know uber eats takes call it 20 to 30 percent you know depending on how you negotiate with them and um and you don't really tip you don't have the opportunity really to tip the restaurant so what he was saying was if he had his own rest you know his own delivery which was they were doing it's a hundred dollar order then you know the people were really generous especially during covid you know with delivery and so he charged a ten dollar delivery fee and then they tipped 20 30 percent so you know his, his getting gross 130 140 dollars in that order versus if he did it through Uber Eats where he's getting $70 on that order. There was a big swing, you know, between doing delivery through Uber Eats or doing delivery mm. himself. And he, as a sophisticated operator, did the math and said, you know what, I'm just going to hire some delivery people and do it ourselves or repurpose some of our wait staff and um, was able to be pretty, very successful. Um, right. And, and you get to keep paying your wait staff rather than, you know, having to just lay them all off, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I want to pivot here a little bit. I know early on, you were very early to look at equity crowdfunding. And you were doing that for the restaurants. And I know you spent a lot of time exploring that as the laws were just starting to evolve. And I thought I'd ask, what, what's what been your experience with that? What's your thinking about that as a, a venue for funding businesses? And do you have any experience with who is a good candidate for that kind of fundraising? Yeah, so we um, we were the first um, people to equity crowdfund a restaurant in the country. So we worked with the DC government. Um, we ended up ahead of um, the federal change, uh, the SEC changes. Uh, we were able to crowdfund a restaurant in DC with Washington DC residents, um, and it, it took a, it took a lot of work uh, to get that first one done. And then we were able to crowdfund a couple of more under those those DC laws. Um, and that was ooh, probably in, uh, 2015 or something like that. Um, overall, like I think for restaurants, restaurants, as we talked about earlier in this call were, are, are a tricky asset class, you know, as an equity investor, it's a hard asset class. Um, and so allowing people to sort of crowdfund for equity for restaurants, Probably isn't the best model. Uh, that's why we really moved away from that because um, 
you know, we, like you said, somebody who wants to, to invest for equity in a local restaurant in the neighborhood wants that restaurant to be there, isn't particularly concerned about the return. Um, and, you know, is more wants to support their community and have a great restaurant that you can go right. in and eat at. So I think if you make it into a really investable or try to make it into a really investable asset, it's hard, you know, um, and at its core, equity crowdfunding is around making investments. You know, it's not around, you know, supporting a, a local mm -hmm. business. And so we've seen, you know, there's still companies that do it. Um, and usually they don't structure it as, as equity. They structure it as debt, um, which probably is a better way to structure it. We didn't do that. We did it as equity. Um, debt makes more sense. But um, we've also seen that those restaurants, um, you know, it, it comes back to the same as steward startups, um, where you might have negative selection for the businesses that are equity crowdfunding, right? Because the, the really good deals are going to the, you know, the active angel investors or the venture capitalists. And, you know, when they sort of pass on those deals, then you end up crowdfunding. Mm. And um, so we definitely saw that in the, in the restaurant business was, you know, if everybody else has sort of passed on this, then, you know, like then they can try to raise on, on an equity, on a crowdfunding platform. Um, which to us wasn't, isn't the point. Like the point of, for us, the reason we really wanted equity crowdfunding was because we wanted people to have a sense of ownership over a local restaurant and come in and spend money and come in frequently and, you know, become the best patrons of that restaurant. And that was true. We saw that people, when they invested in a restaurant, they'd bring their friends, they'd show off their restaurant, which is a, was awesome. Exactly what we wanted. Um, and in kind, sort of an evolution of that, where somebody can buy a high dollar house account and be a VIP at that restaurant, but they don't own equity and they don't, we don't deal with any of the, you know, payments in the right. you know, like, which, which is hard for the restaurant. Uh, and you find that people yeah. still have sort of a similar level of kind of pride of, of ownership or association with that as well? Not, you know, not exactly the same. Of course, if you're, a, you know, you're an owner as an equity investor, an owner, that's going to be a little bit more um, pride, but we, I definitely have data, you know, when somebody buys a high dollar house account, you know, and they have a house account at a restaurant, they spend 400% more per year at that restaurant. They come in two and a half times as often, you know, they, they, uh, so yeah, you see behavior. It's not the exact same as being an owner, um, but probably overall, uh, with all sort of the downsides of having, you know, 400 owners, like it's a right. better and, and that's certainly a non-trivial lift, you know, that's, that's a, a, a big increase in, in sales to those people. Yeah, exactly. And that's why the restaurants we work with, you know, they really love it because they're not giving up ownership. They're not paying back a debt and they're really just getting a lot of awesome customers who come in a lot and, and spread the word of the restaurant. It, it's almost a bit of a Patreon kind of model where people are enthusiastic fans and they're getting maybe some special access. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but I think it fits into the same psychology of, of the reason people get involved in these. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I think in kind, so that was sort of the evolution was, okay, we know that we want to have people who are, big fans or, you know, yeah, Patreon sort of model with restaurants. How can we do it in a way that sort of makes sense in the restaurant industry? So that's, that's really what InKind does is we'll, we'll fund 
so we don't we don't rely on crowdfunding right to fund a restaurant we fund off our off of our um, either off of our balance sheet or off of our uh, credit fund that we have you know we'll give a restaurant um, the, the largest deals we've done are like 1.2 million to date um, per deal and we'll um, we're exploring five and ten million dollar deals right now with big restaurant groups and then we buy a lot of credit uh, and then we over time sell that credit and get that consumer behavior you know that you would get kind of through the crowdfunding but without going through a crowdfunding right. and I'm, I'm sure from a regulation point of view it's much simpler too there's just, there's not uh, certainly no accreditation or, or rules about what you can say to who and reporting and things like that absolutely yeah we um you know because we we were doing equity crowdfunding before even the sec rules passed so every state had their own rules so i remember um we were going to launch in colorado and the like the the rules in colorado were that you had to have somebody upload their id before you could tell them anything about the opportunity and it was like, who's going to do that? You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Scam, scam are us. Please up to upload a photo of your ID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, it's better now. And, you know, and, and we're, we are, I would say on the, you know, I invest um, through like weed funder, we funder and people like that in startups, you know, like, I think that's a good model, but I think it comes back to what you said earlier, which is like a restaurant's not going to have a, an exit. You know, with the restaurant, you're you're hoping for for cash flow, uh, really, and so it, it's a little bit different asset class. So I'm not I'm not super hot on on crowdfunding for restaurants, but I definitely like would personally participate in crowdfunding for, mm-hmm. for startups. You know, it's like interesting looking at, at as an angel investor. I'm often frustrated by the number of entrepreneurs that I can't help because the kind of business they're trying to start just doesn't work for angel investment. You know, it, it doesn't, there's kind of a narrow set of criteria. And if you don't have this kind of structure and the you know likelihood of this kind of exit multiples over this amount of time, even though it's a fantastic business, it just really, you can't make that connection. It's not going to make economic sense for the investors or uh, venture capitalists down the road. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And I think the restaurants are sort of one of those asset classes, you know, like certainly there aren't, um, you know, there's, and at some scale, you know, if you're investing in Sweet Greens or investing in, you know, a a franchise or a big group, you, you might, you know, there are definitely venture capitalists and angel investors that, are, that will right. do that. But, you know, usually for a, uh, an independent restaurant, yeah, it's just the, the economics, other than you wanting it to exist in your neighborhood, exactly. <laughs> are, are tricky. <laughs> now, I've talked to a lot of other people in these interviews and, and separately uh, women and minorities about some of the challenges that they've run into because of being women and minorities. And so I thought I'd, I'd just ask, what's been your experience sort of coming at this whole space from the LGBT community? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, we we just went through, InKind actually just went through an incubator in um in San Francisco called Start Out, which is an LGBT incubator. Uh, great, great, great program. I've never even heard of that. Uh, it's a, yeah, I actually hadn't heard of it uh, either. Uh, and then a um, friend of a friend told me about it and um, it's, they don't take any equity. It's uh, non-dilutive um, and they really provide, provided a 
we just finished a six month program. It was supposed to be in San Francisco, but mm-hmm. it's virtual now. Um, and awesome, awesome guidance and mentorship. Um, we're the managing director, uh, Chris Davidson. We're still working with him even after the program. And he's helping us uh, with a lot of our fundraising on the, on the credit fund side and really, really awesome. So I would say like coming out of that program, you know, and it's, it's, in particular for LGBT uh, entrepreneurs uh, was awesome. You know, like, so having that community has been great, mm-hmm. right? Like absolutely. Uh, that's definitely a, a positive, you know, um, by the company we started, um, we started the previous uh, version of Inkind um, because uh, Andy, my husband, who you know, well, he, um, Doma was overturned and he was living in England and he was able to move to the U S and, um, and get a fiance visa. And then we got married and he, you know, so we decided, Hey, let's start a company together because he's a, he's a corporate lawyer and I want to do a, you know, another startup. Um, so we'd never see each other. <laughs> we both did that. So we said, let's do it together. And we started, uh, we started in kind, but so, you know, for me, my personal experience has always been, that has been positive about, you know, who I am. And, but I don't also know it from like, if I, if we were, you know, if I was a straight white person, like how would my life have been different? You know, I don't know. Uh, definitely. Um, the, the people that we surround ourselves with are, are, um, are great people. Right? So we don't, <laughs> we don't deal with that, but, we, when we were in DC, part of the reason we left DC was because um, I moved down here to Texas, which often is a, is a, is a great, great uh, place in Texas, but is, um, you know, when Trump was elected, there were literally, we were in the gayest part of DC, um, Logan Circle, um, and there were people coming in to Logan Circle to, you know, during Pride to like yell at gay people. And, mm. you know, there's like these things just never, never happened before. And so I think, yeah, there's, there's always, you know, some discrimination or whatever. But um, what we've been able to do, I think, is surround ourselves with people who are, um, you know, are, are community oriented and really like go out of their way, I think, to help. Uh, to help us. I think that's actually been true too. That's probably, um, yeah, there was a restaurant yesterday I was talking to and they're a little bit early for us. Um, he doesn't have a, a lease signed yet. And normally, you know, a part of our underwriting, you have to have a lease signed and then we can, you know, figure out the funding amount. Um, and we were just chatting and then, you know, it turns out that his husband really, really wants him to open this restaurant and it's you know, like it's his dream. And then I was telling him about how my husband said, if I open another restaurant, he's going to divorce me because it's so much work to run a restaurant. <laughs> and, you know, we, we connected that way. And so, of course, we're going to, we're going to do the deal. Um, so, you know, not, not because he's gay, but, but, uh, but I will say that we do, um, we fund uh, a disproportionately high number of minorities um, in our business. So um, you know, there's a, a great restaurant in D.C., uh, mother and daughter team um, from from Burma. Nobody wanted to finance them. No, like they went to investors, they went to banks. You know, they just weren't what people expected would be a successful restaurateur. Mm-hmm. And um, and we ended up financing them. And, and now they've won tons of awards. And you know, everyone realizes what we realized early on, which was they're awesome. They produce great food, and yeah, but they may not look like what you typically would invest in. But you know, we. Uh, 
um, because our underwriting isn't around credit scores or anything. It's really around because we don't ask the restaurant for money, so we don't need them. We don't. I don't. We don't really care if they have a history of repaying loans or not. Doesn't right. matter to us. We look at how is your food. You know, can you produce great food? Um, and you know, what's your hospitality like? You know, how do you treat guests when they come in? And and that's those are the things that we look at when we finance. And um, so that's I think part of the reason that we love being kind so much is we get to help minorities and women and LGBT uh, entrepreneurs. You know, who other people mm-hmm. may pass on. Um, but uh, that we're able to help. Yeah, I've so, seen a lot of these sort of yeah. communities of support around, you know, for women entrepreneurs or minority entrepreneurs. Uh, and, and it's not, it probably doesn't necessarily offset some of the disadvantages, but they definitely do help each other a lot. And it's very intentional in, in that kind of support. So what do you think in terms of, and you're looking at, at which restaurants to invest in or which companies to invest in, from your perspective, kind of what what are the signs to you that indicates which one of these is going to be uh, a successful or less successful? What what sort of a make or break when you're thinking investment decisions, either restaurants or non-restaurants? Yeah, so um, so you know, Lance, you know, I invest in a lot of like tech companies, and then I do some equity investments in restaurants, very very rarely. And then I do a lot of in-kind financing for restaurants. So on the in-kind side, starting there, that's the easiest. That's, you know, are they going to be around? Because if we buy a bunch of credit, we want to make sure that they're going to be around so people can, we can sell the credit and people can use the credit, right? So we underwrite against that. But we also help to make sure that they do stay around. So, you know, a restaurant, number one reason a restaurant closes or the recent closures is they get behind on rent and then they, Eventually, you're three months behind on rent, and you don't have enough, you obviously don't have three months of rent. You didn't have one month of rent to pay, <laughs> and the landlord locks you out. Mm. The restaurant closes, right? So we'll do things like we don't really care if you're good at managing cash flow. Like I would care as much on the, on the other sides, but on, in our model, because we'll pay the restaurant's rent every day. We'll take a small amount of money out of their account, save it till the end of the month, and pay the landlord. We don't charge a fee for that, but for an independent restaurant. Um, we'll do that and the operators will love it. They don't have to worry about, you know, saving up $8,000 for the end of the month to write that rent check. We just save it for them every day, right? So we implement little products that help them with cash flow management, help them be successful. And then of course we help them with the marketing side and, you know, with the funding and everything connected to kind. So their underwriting is very, very different. It's really just looking at, can they produce great food? Is there a community out there that wants to buy these credits? and support this restaurant and come, come in and like this. So that's, you know, it's, it's a pretty straightforward underwriting mm-hmm. there. Um, and it's very, very um, quantitative, actually. So, you know, we look at Yelp reviews, we look at Facebook likes, you know, we look at those kinds of things. Then the, the middle section, uh, was, we'll call it the restaurant equity investments. That's actually much more similar to the tech where you're looking at team. You know, early on, that's most important is team. And so almost always in the restaurant side, you know, I would want to see a, a great chef, but paired with a great operator. You know, like you want to see that, that operation side, just, just having a great chef isn't, isn't enough. You know, um, you have to have that operations person, the person who really understands the finances of the business. Um, and that's, you know, I think, and then on the same is true with, with the tech early stage investing, you know, as, 
team is number one, right? And then on that side, it's is it a space that I can add hopefully some value, you know? Um, and if it's a, you know, a biotech company, I probably don't add a ton of value at all. <laughs> and so, you know, it probably doesn't make sense for me to invest in that, right? But if it's something to do with um, restaurant technology, uh, for example, um, then, you know, that's probably something that's really like, it's a good team in a space that I understand, but I'd be have probably a, a good chance. So how do you evaluate a team? Yeah. Um, you know, from, I think from like, um, from scratching, you know, or cutting my knees or elbows, I think the expression is, you know, from the, from the failures, you can kind of go, okay. I lost money on that. Let me reevaluate, you know, how I'm evaluating. And I, I actually think the, the number one right now in my head is, um, is grit. Like, are they, you know, in COVID, this is, this is a great example of, are they able to sustain and pivot and figure it out? Right. And there's always going to be obstacles and COVID is a particularly big obstacle. Right. You know, <laughs> are they able to, to get around those and are they going to stick with it? Because I think oftentimes, you know, people, especially if it's their first startup or they, um, you know, there's always, it's easy to, when things get hard to, to quit. Right. And that as an investor is the absolute worst case because, you know, I want them to, to continue to, to do it and eventually hopefully, you know, be successful. But obviously if they quit, then there's no way to be successful. So, that's probably like number one. And so that means, okay, who's not going to quit? Somebody who's passionate about the space, you know, somebody who loves like, just like with, with, with us, you know, within kind we've, we've evolved. And or when we did equity crowdfunding for restaurants, right. And we, we pivoted from that to, to what we're doing today. If I didn't love restaurants and I didn't love food and I didn't love working with the entrepreneurs that we work with, it would have been a lot easier for me to say, okay, well, I'm going to do something else. You know, I'm going to go back to doing computer security work, <laughs> you know, and start up in that area. And then, so I think having that grit, which is caused by, or part of that is the, having that real passion um, for the, the mm -hmm. area that they're in. Um, and then, of course, that also helps with, you know, wanting to, to understanding the space and like, you know, being involved and producing a better product of that space. Um, and then, you know, with the team, I think you want to look for, you know, do these people like each other? You know, you can kind of see that in those meetings, you know, are they going to stick around, you know, um, because of course, co-founders are always, you know, there's always going to, no one's ever going to be together forever, right. <laughs> but how do they work, you know, as a team, how does, what's the dynamic there? Um, yeah, that's probably the most uh, you, you mentioned really briefly sort of the the advantage of the passion is that they know the space. And that that always strikes me as something that is so important and and so many really young founders kind of miss. Like I want to create a company, I want to be a founder. That's their primary goal is they want to found something. And so they're looking for something to do, but they don't actually have much knowledge or experience of that thing. And so they don't really have an intimate understanding of you know, what are the pain points? Why is the obvious solution you're coming up with not something that someone's already implemented, right? And there probably is a good reason for that. <laughs> yes, 100%. You know, and that's, I think, those are the best founders. The, the best founders to fund are the ones who are in the space, have been in the space, deep in the trenches, and realize, hey, here's a 
an improvement, right? Here is something that we can do better because we understand the business so well, right? So if you're you're doing insurance, car insurance, for example, you you know if it's a founder who's been in car insurance for five years and really understands it out and has an idea and is passionate about car insurance, that would be a great you know a funder uh, founder versus me saying, oh my gosh, I have such a good idea around car insurance. You know, <laughs> let me go and do this. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a reason, like you said, that that idea. Right. I mean, it's sort of interesting that, that Silicon Valley kind of has this odd brain damage that they seem to love to found to fund uh, recent Stanford grads with no experience in what they're doing. And, you know, they've had some really good success. But as, as a systematic approach, it, it seems uh problematic and missing so many opportunities, right? It's so obsessively youth focused as well that I think there's a big bias within the kind of Silicon Valley bubble against the 45 year old founder who's got a bunch of experience in a space and really knows what they're doing. Yeah, I wonder, I'm sure there's data, but I bet that overall investing in the 45 year old founder knows what they're doing is far more likely to succeed than the Stanford grad. But yeah. I, don't know. I, I should look, I'll bet, I'll bet there is some data. If there is, I'll, I'll make a point of uh, linking it down in the description. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe you get more swinging for the fences with the young kids, whereas the older people tend to be a little bit more practical. You know, maybe they'll hit a triple reliably, but they're not going to be the you know, just insane thing uh, in part because they probably are more risk averse, right? When you're, when you're older, you've got a house, you've got a mortgage. I mean, I'm, I remember, I literally had a conversation with my wife before we founded Anonymizer where I said, well, look, uh, we're both grad students and we're renting a house at the time down the street from my parents, from my parents. I was like, okay, worst case does not involve us landing on the street, right? And we have no assets. So it's not like we're putting anything at risk. We're both broke anyway. <laughs> so let's try this. Yeah, worst case, we declare bankruptcy and go back to grad school. It's, it's a very manageable thing. Whereas, <laughs> you know, you got two kids and a mortgage and college payments, and suddenly that, that equation is not in any way the same. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 100%. I, and there's also, I think, um, you know, venture capitalists will say, like, one of the things that they look for is, can this person raise the next round of funding? Right. So, you know, yeah, we'll put it in their A with the expectation they're going to be able to raise their B. And if there's a bias towards the, the 20 something year old, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, as an example, then that 45 year old founder, even though they're a great product, maybe he'll have a harder time raising the B round. Right. So they're actually sort of becomes this um, self-fulfilling sort of negative uh, around not, you know, it being doubly hard or triply mm. hard uh, for those founders. So, you know, so we've got another reason is the ageism. The, uh, um. <laughs> or the same applies probably to, to women and minorities and, you know, the non-prototypical uh, founder, you know, successful founder, right? That person in their people's minds, whatever that person looks like, it probably looks like a a white guy who has a degree in computer science from Stanford, you know, like, or, uh, or dropped out of Harvard, I guess. Um, you know, one of those two, if you're not that, it's just much, much, much mm. harder, yeah, much harder. What are you seeing with, with people being able to make the shift from the uh, angel round to the A round? It, it, it seems like a lot of the companies I'm seeing are having a huge struggle with that. And, and it feels like it's a bigger problem now than it was maybe five years ago. But do you have any, any thought on that? 
Yeah. Um, I think that there are probably, it is harder. Now, during COVID, I think the companies that are um, currently doing well um, are having an easier time during COVID than, um, than they would have pre-COVID because there are fewer companies competing now for those A round mm-hmm. dollars, you know, and the dollars are still there. That makes sense. Um, so, you know, if you had a startup in travel, it's probably not a great time, you know, to raise an A round. <laughs> but, you know, we've, the companies that, um, that, that I'm invested in who seem to be, have pivoted or adapted to COVID um, are, um, you know, I talked to one of the, uh, the founders of a company last week and he said, yeah, so he, he, he just raised around from Google Ventures and um, I think it was an $8 million um, round. And then now that he's looking in November to even raise an, another round. And it's um, because of a huge appetite for what he's doing right now during COVID, you know, it's helping businesses with tax credits through COVID um, that they, you know, now have been unlocked. And so, and he's growing exponentially. Um, and so it's a good time for him to be raising. So I guess it really depends on yeah. the business. I, mean, I, I, I see a lot of now pitches where they're very COVID specific. And I've been, in fact, actively re- recommending people be careful about that because as an investor, I'm saying, well, this is a great idea now, but we're all assuming this will end at some point in the reasonably near future. And what does the business look like after that? So I think it's a good ar- argument for maybe why now or why this is a good way to get into the space but uh, some of these folks are trying to build almost COVID-specific businesses. Uh, seems very short-sighted. Yeah, I totally agree. So I actually asked him about that specifically. I said, huh, it's a lot of money to be raising, which is awesome. But what happens after COVID? <laughs> <laughs> like, and, and he said, well, really, our, our long-term goal is much, much bigger. right?" So we want to do X, Y, and Z. This is an entry point into getting customer base. Um, and allowing us then to get to where we want to go. So he even he, so he has a, a longer term vision, and COVID is allowing him to accelerate into right. what he wants, you know, to get to. So you're 100 percent right, though. Like a, a you know a particular COVID based business is going to be right. A, I think it's, it's maybe a, a great point. answer to the why now question. It's like this gets us into the market at a scale where we can then operate in a more normal way in a year or two. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we're getting close to the end here. I wanted to ask you, is there one piece of advice that you would like to give to founders or that you give all the time or that you really wish you'd had when you got starting? Um, I think, you know, I I would 100% recommend that, um, well, it has to do with community. Like end of the day, um, you need to surround yourself with really good mentors, advisors, um, you know, co-founders, um, and and that is the most important thing. Right? You need people who can really give you solid advice and work with you and help you because nobody's ever built a successful company, you know, by themselves. And if you can do that through you know, an awesome incubator, you know, like a Y Combinator or a TechStars, great. You know, um, or there's a local one in your community. That's great. That's awesome. Um, but really, go out of your way to find to find people to to really help mentor and give you advice. And you know, those people you don't like hopefully would be investors at some point mm-hmm. as well. You know, in in your business. Um, but um, you know, Lancey and I have talked about this a little bit. Like we love mentoring 
because we learn a lot from when we mentor. And, we just, and I think so many people they feel that. nervous even asking and they assume it's some huge imposition. They don't realize how many people are really excited to help startups. And these are typically fun people who are passionate and doing neat things, right? It's, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, our head of product, actually, we hired him um, because he had a, he had a startup in in the restaurant space, and it was it wasn't um, going great. But um, you know, he he asked me for for advice, and I had a couple of meetings with him, and like, oh well, if you you know ever want to come over to Inkind, like you know, and he ended up eventually coming over here, and I think that's um, part of the reason that you know it's just, it's fun to do. It's fun to mentor people who are passionate about what they're doing. And then, you know, the startup is always going to be some level of not working out. So, you know, there's other things you can do later with, with, with people that you reached out to. Right. You have so, a network, you have relationships, um, that would be, I you guess, have all that in place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and last question, are there any organizations or resources that you want to call out? I always like to have kind of a list of links at the bottom uh, of, of things that, that viewers can go check out. Yeah, I mean, for, um, you know, we just went through Start Out um, has a program called Growth Lab. Um, that's specifically for LGBT entrepreneurs. Um, that was awesome. Techstars, you know, when I went through that, I, I went through their, from their very first class, which I think was in 2007. Um, it was a long time ago, but I'm still quite involved um, as a mentor with some of the Techstars programs. And then also, um, I'm an investor in uh, I think three tech starts funds, you know, that are funding companies. And so, uh, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in what they're doing. Um, but, um, yeah, otherwise, um, you know, LinkedIn is a great resource, like find people who <laughs> can reach out to them and right. don't, you know, don't, don't, don't miss and, the and obvious things. For, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, wonderful. Absolutely. Johan, it's been such a pleasure and it's been way too long since we've talked. Thanks so much for coming on Fill the Boot. Yeah, thanks, Lance. Uh, hopefully the next time we see each other will be over a glass. I, that wine. would be wonderful. Uh, I'm getting a little tired of this everything <laughs> on screen. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Feel the Boot. I hope you found it useful and interesting, and if so, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. I also encourage you to go check out our website at feeltheboot.com and our Feel the Boot YouTube channel with video versions of these podcasts. Finally, I would really appreciate it if you would share this information with other entrepreneurs. I'm trying to help as many people as possible. Till next time, ciao. Bye.